The future of healthcare is exciting with many new therapies finding incredible success. The Heroic Dose brought to you by Microdose is a one-day virtual conference that will explore the use of psychedelic therapies in military veterans and first responders in an effort to combat the alarming rates of PTSD, substance abuse, and suicide in this coveted yet undeserved demographic. Topics discussed include the therapeutic potential of psychedelics over opioids for pain management, reducing the graduation of acute pain to chronic pain, and preventing suicide in the long run. The Heroic Dose will cover the intersection of clinical care, research, and investment arenas. Now, while this is an all-day event on April 22nd, yours truly will be moderating a panel at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The panels focus the altered state of combat veteran trauma and the quest for novel therapeutics in psychedelic substances history and overview of current treatments. And the panel will feature four veterans who have used psychedelic therapies to combat PTSD, trauma, opioid addiction, and I would love to show them some support from the phenomenal Brian Nichols Show audience. So please follow the link to the show notes to the Microdose website and sign up for this incredible virtual conference. And if you are a veteran, a 100% discount will be applied at checkout. Again, that's the Heroic Dose brought to you by Microdose. Link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Friday, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for joining us on another fun-filled episode, and thank you for uh, joining us for on this week, the third installment, we started things off on Monday with Scott Beyer talking about market urbanism and how we can fix our broken cities. Wednesday, J.W. Weatherman joined the show talking about Bitcoin. And today, good friend of the show, Brad Palumbo from Breaking Boundaries, Fee and National Review returns to the Brian Nichols Show to talk about all things infrastructure. Everything is infrastructure, I hear. And uh, Brad joins the show to uh, break down some of these uh, not infrastructure, infrastructure uh, things. I, I keep on using the word infrastructure because I've been told by the, the folks in the Democratic Party that everything is infrastructure. So Brad uh, joins the program to uh, to dig into more of this actual infrastructure bill, uh, how 20% of it or so is only uh, actually infrastructure, like the things we consider, you know, roads, bridges, that stuff, real infrastructure, um, and uh, just a bunch of other craziness in terms of where the spending goes. So always a great conversation with Brad, always uh, a lot to be learned. So that being said, on to the show, Brad Palumbo here on The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me back. Dude, Brad, you have been busy. My goodness. Last time I saw you, let's see, uh, you were, I think, testifying before Congress. No big deal. You were just on Shapiro this morning here recording on the 8th. And, uh, dude, you've been you've been reaching a lot of people. You're talking about the important things. And the important things right now is this one point. Was it one point nine trillion dollars? Some odd spending bill. We just did two trillion infrastructure bill. It. It's all this uh, make-believe money anyways, Brad. But, Brad, you've been fighting the good fight and raising up awareness of what's been going on, though. So let's start off here. What's been uh, happening besides you just staying busy over in the world of Brad Palumbo and Breaking Boundaries? Well, we've been uh, keeping up with the podcast in addition to all the writing and everything I've done. So I've had, um, I think since I last saw you, I had Congressman Massey on, a bunch of other good guests. Just did a, 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 uh, an episode about homeschooling that that was really interesting about like had Robbie Suave on the true definition of cancel culture which is a lot more nuanced of an issue 
than people think, especially for libertarians. You know, where's the line between what is allowed under government in terms of not a violation of free speech officially, but like kind of a culture of a liberalism. So we've been having those good conversations. People can join in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo. But I've been really honed in on this infrastructure and big government spending blowout and waste like nothing before we've ever seen. So that's been one of my main areas of focus since we last talked. It's wild to see there has been almost zero talk about truly the cost of what this spending bill has been proposed to be. Now, the dirty little secret, Brad, and we know this, is that anytime you see a government spending bill, you can probably just go ahead and times it by two um, in terms of what it will actually end up costing. And I mean, I was just thinking John Stossel did an amazing video um, where he basically went through and showed a public bathroom in New York City and then compared it to the private bathroom counterpart, literally like right down the street. Public bathroom took over five years to build and two million dollars to to uh to fund and guess what the private bathroom 200 some odd thousand dollars and they had done like six months so you can instantly see there is a massive massive inflated cost and that's just with all these externalities that go into the uh, the price tag for government and public goods so we're seeing right here infrastructure two trillion dollars so let's just say four and then brad the part that's that's absolutely insane to me is that only a fraction of this if we're even gonna pretend that it's two actual infrastructure is actually to the infrastructure it's it's actually a bunch of just fluff and they're using the word infrastructure to make it more palatable so let's dig into maybe some of the misconceptions and uh, the misnomers that have been promoted there by the left yeah i think the biden administration knows that the general concept of infrastructure polls well and most people even myself included uh, who are not full-blown anarchists would say there's some role for the federal government in in transportation infrastructure interstate highways uh, railroads, these sorts of things, right? But the most possible generous definition of infrastructure as people commonly think it, anything related to transportation um, is only about a third of this bill. So of that two plus trillion, and we can talk about this, but I, I actually know the, the real number is much higher than that. Um, but of the, the supposed two trillion, around two thirds is completely unrelated to what regular folks would think of as infrastructure. So they did this thing where they just decided anything's infrastructure. We Childcare is uh, family infrastructure. Uh, internet is digital infrastructure. So I, I'll just read you some of the, there's social infrastructure, education infrastructure. They just started calling everything infrastructure. It's like our politics seems so obsessed with taking words that have a, a agreed upon meaning and exploiting them to the point where they just lose all meaning. And I think we're going to yeah. have to add infrastructure as the latest one to the list. So just to rattle off a few examples, uh, this infrastructure bill has $20 billion to advance racial equity and environmental justice. It's got $10 billion to create a civilian climate core. Uh, it has almost $200 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles. Uh, it's got $200 more billion to retrofit and build 2, bi- 2 million houses uh, with $40 billion for public housing. It's even got an initiative in there that pours $100 billion to new public schools and then has a special program to make school lunches greener by getting rid of paper plates and other disposable materials. Uh, And don't forget, of course, what would an infrastructure plan be without billions to eliminate racial and gender inequities in science, technology, engineering, and math, as well as a huge expansion of broadband internet with an explicit focus on crowding out private sector and promoting government control. 
and then, of course, there's money for childcare and a bunch of other partisan stuff. I mean, it's funny. I had this article that really blew up. Nine exa- crazy examples of unrelated waste and partisan spending. Uh, I just opened up his actual proposal, spent about an hour reading it and highlighting things, and then made this article. But I mean, like the final legislative text is going to be a thousand pages, 500 pages. And I'm just one dude in one hour looking at the outline. And I found all that crap. And your average person would hear that and be like, well, hold up. Like, that's not infrastructure. And if you just if we just explain it literally as as black and white as it possibly could be like this is what is in the bill. Your average person is going to to raise some eyebrows. And yet they we see them time and again, Brad, get away with this where they can just go ahead, call a bill something that's really, you know, emotionally tying, you know, whether it's the Patriot Act. Right. We're all patriotic after 9-11. So who wouldn't want to have their their phone records and such looked into under mass surveillance? I mean, you got nothing to hide. We got to stop the terrorists. Right. So we look at this infrastructure bill and your average person, though, they're just going to go ahead. And I think it's because they don't either know or they don't they don't care. So how do we make them care? Like this isn't make believe money. Like this is stuff that you, your family, your grandkids are going to have to pay for one day. Yeah. So I think there's two things. One is that the media is really supposed to be the watch guard that brings people this information. It's not reasonable to expect most Americans to open up the Biden administration's website, download the PDF of their proposal and comb through it. Right. That's the job of people like me and you. And we do it. Right. But most of the mainstream media simply does not. They just parrot the talking points and they just shill for the bill because it supports their agenda. And they have gone fully in the tank for Biden in most cases. Uh, And they might quietly have a few articles here or there fact checking something or pointing out one flaw of the bill or but it's really, really mute. So I think the the first thing is that the media is, is neglecting its its duty as an institution to bring these facts to the American public because uh, stuff like this, I mean, Biden's COVID bill, so-called, polls really well with the public. And that's because most people don't know it wasn't a COVID bill. Only about 10% of the money went directly to uh, defeating the pandemic, you know, vaccines and medicine and, and investments and that kind of thing. 90% was big government welfare and waste and all sorts of fraud and but nobody knows this stuff. I mean, some people hear about it from conservative media or libertarian media, but it's the, the, the masses aren't given this information. And I really believe that if more people knew about it, they would reject this kind of thing. Uh, and I guess the second point is that it's almost nihilistic, but the American people have become numb to trillions of this and trillions of that. So what I like to do is break it down into tangible per person numbers. So let me give you an example. The Biden administration fudged fudged the numbers to really make their infrastructure proposal seem like it's much less expensive than it is. So they're saying it's a $2 trillion plan. But they did something unusual. They evaluated the plan over how much money it would spend over eight years. That's not how legislation is scored. It's always done over a decade. So the Trump tax cut, the COVID relief bill, the $1.9 trillion, whatever, that's always for 10 years. So by evaluating it over eight years, they underestimated the cost by 20% at minimum. So the true cost is between 2.65 to 2.75 trillion. Now those numbers, it sounds like I'm just a nerd. I'm just like cracking the details. That doesn't mean a whole lot to most people. The difference between 2.25 trillion and 2.75 trillion. But it's $3,500 per federal taxpayer more coming out of your wallet. So think of it like that. And if we could if we could frame these big numbers more in terms of per person, per household, 
compared to other things. For example, Biden's infrastructure bill is like if you compared it in inflation adjusted dollars, cost twice as much as the New Deal under FDR. Uh, pe- people don't understand this. And so I try to put the numbers in this context because I think that's one of the only ways we can actually get through to people. And cut off some zeros, too, just for fun. I mean, like, yeah, because trillions and billions. I mean, we just think of Dr. Evil. You know, that's that's where my head goes because it's not a real number. Honestly, like, that's that's kind of how we've all been conditioned, right? Trillion is just it's such a massive number to even think about that we just push it off into the back of our mind because we can't even like conceptualize it. But just if you were to go ahead and slap off, you know, six zeros from the trillion and make it a little bit more easy to manage talking about, you know, the hundreds of thousands or the tens of thousands and then put that in the number of, okay, let's talk about, you know, your your family's credit card bills. If you're spending $50,000 a month and you're only taking in $10,000 a month, is that sustainable? Probably not. And that's something that your average person could be like, oh, yeah, I get that. But when you hear... $2.75 $2.75 trillion uh, versus $2.25 trillion. That's just pie in the sky stuff. So I think it is tough, right, Brad? That, that that might be the number one thing is just the conceptualization of how much money this actually is and what the ramifications of it are. Yeah, the human brain is not even actually physically capable of comprehending what a trillion is. There are some analogies out there that I don't have off the top of my head, but it's like, We actually can't imagine what that is. We struggle to even imagine something like a million. So that's one of the things that that skews in this debate heavily in favor of the big government progressives and liberals and big spending Republicans, too, who trust me, they do plenty of that crap. Um, They just want to spend on different things sometimes, some of them. Um, And so that's why. And one thing that could solve it somewhat would be to stop doing these massive combined bills and start doing things one at a time. So, for example, the COVID relief, this, the budget on the bus, this infrastructure bill, it's all these 500, 1,000 page documents. They do this very deliberately in Washington, D.C., because they know then they can slip in the, the, you know, the 1.5 million that Chuck Schumer, and this is a real thing, uh, wants to build a bridge in his home state into the COVID relief bill. But if they had to introduce that spending item as a standalone bill, money to fund the bridge in the Seaway Bridge in New York for Chuck Schumer, it would get media scrutiny and public outcry. So I don't know the exact mechanisms of doing it. Congress is a very distorted and bureaucratic place. But if we could really block these big behemoth pieces of legislation and force them to actually debate things one at a time, uh, it would really do go a long way. Justin Amash has spoken about the way that leadership has stopped this and shut down amendments and only allowed big, massive bills to come to the floor. If we could get away from that, it would go a long way towards restoring fiscal sanity and cracking down on waste, corruption, and, and partisan frauds. I'm going to implore Gen Z to be the ones to help us get there. And and here's my pitch. So I just finished an amazing book um, called Zeconomy by Jason Dorsey. And basically what the entire uh, context of the book is just looking at Generation Z as a generation in terms of buying habits, but also in terms of uh, where they're where, where they're heading. And one thing that we're finding is that the millennials, the Gen Xers, and the boomers, for whatever reason, revert to whatever Gen Z is doing. 
That's never happened before in history. Usually what happens is the, the generation with the most disposable income, they're the ones who are setting the market trends. And then the other generations will, will look to them for their market trend. But then the other like more like hip trends, they'll start to come in from a more cultural perspective. But what we're seeing is the actual economic buying stuff is, is now coming and being driven from Gen Z. So I, I then I say, OK, well, interesting. Let's look at Gen Z. And if, as you look at the individuals in Gen Z, they're individualistic. They, they have a very uh, strong sense of self, um, you know, personal identity. Um, they also are very focused on the, the things beyond the dollars and cents, the, the feel-good stuff. They, they're very focused on social causes. So climate change is a big issue that they have, uh, that, that they care about, um, you know, helping your communities. And there's a way we can show Gen Z solutions to those problems without it being big government. And one thing that is extremely exciting is that they are overtly questionable about economics. They they say they save up a lot of money. They they see what the generations ahead of them have done in spending money and knowing now they don't have the money when the time comes and they're like I don't want to be that person. They all have pretty much rainy day funds. I mean, I was just talking to my sister and you know, she decided she's not going to go and, and live on campus anymore. She's going to go ahead and probably stay home and save $10,000 a month or a year rather. And, and that, or I think it's a semester, which is still insane. And she's thinking that way. Whereas my generation, we were like, yeah, go to college. It's the experience. Like, oh, it's an extra $10,000, $15,000, whatever it is to live on campus. Okay. Yeah. I throw that into the, uh, the lump sum, I guess. So I, I'm saying all that because what we're talking about in terms of these solutions and, and you know, breaking down an infrastructure bill from $2 trillion to individual bills that are much more easy to digest, I think we're going to see more and more as that Gen Z electorate starts to vote and they're starting to focus more on this as being a solution and the people that they're representing or they're uh, electing to represent them. That's when I think we could actually see some big change. So Gen Zers, I'm, I'm asking you guys, you know, and I know there's quite a few of you guys that listen to this show, like get involved, get active, because if if the trends are, are accurate and you guys are actually helping facilitate the change, then we need you guys. We need to get young folks in office who are focused on making things better. But that also means focusing on the things that didn't work in the past. And that includes looking at just spending boatloads of money, thinking that we're just going to do good. And Brad, you, you started to touch on it. This, this, um, you know, this, the snuck in little aspects and tidbits that we would consider pork spending, right? Back in the day when you had the pork spending that Ron Paul, um, would, would, you know, talk about so fervently. So what, what could we do to help maybe focus on getting that out of these type of bills? How can we, I mean, get some sunlight exposed on these type of pork spending that are, are so often fl- just fluffed into these different bills? Well, the first thing we already talked about, which is break them down. Uh, the second thing is more media coverage and spotlight on it. I do it, and every time it does really well. Uh, there's a huge unmet demand for this. There's just the the problem is that the the mainstream media is not really willing, but new media it, it really can uh, emerge to meet unsatisfied market demands, and people do want to know this stuff. Uh, my articles about government waste and pork are some of my most highly trafficked pieces that are going, they're blowing up across the uh, the web. So I, I, I want to circle back to Gen Z too for a minute, because yeah, I don't know if you know this, I'm going to make, I, I'm going to make you feel really old, like a boomer for a second. I'm technically count as Gen Z. Yep. I'm just over the line from Gen Z to millennial. So uh, I, I, I'm definitely an outlier, you know, as a right wing <laughs> free market fiscal hawk. Um, uh I'm not the typical Gen Zer. Uh, I'm very much, I think, out of step with the generation in a lot of ways, and I don't really care because I'm an individualist. But one thing I wish I could get across to Gen Z folks, because 
Gen Z folks, polling shows, you know, across all swaths of, of the generation really care about climate change a lot as an issue. They're concerned about the future of the environment and about the idea that current generations are imposing costs on future generations yep. to enjoy current benefits, but the costs will exceed the benefits. They just aren't felt by the people that are making the decisions. It's an act of intergenerational injustice as Gen Z by and large sees it. And I, I, I perhaps don't share the, the fervor of it or the alarmism that creeps into their view, but I broadly agree with that sentiment as applied to climate change. I also don't agree with, you know, like government solutions, Green New Deal and all that. But just focusing on that sentiment for a moment, I wish if I could accomplish one thing in, in my career as, you know, an economic focused journalist policy guy, show them that the exact same thing is true of the national debt, literally verbatim, the comparison is the same. The current generations are not paying or bearing the costs of the things they want now, and they're passing them down the road, massive externality that will hang over future generations and drag down growth and reduce investment and shrink wages, hurt the standard of living, and potentially, if it gets bad enough, undermine our currency and our fiscal stability. Um, and of course, increase all of our taxes the rest of our life. As soon as interest rates go up, we'll be paying trillions every year just to cover the, the interest payments. I mean, young people know how when you have student loans, you have to pay that like minimum uh, every month. Well, right now, because interest rates are so artificially kept at zero by the Fed, our minimum is, is still large, but it's less than a trillion dollars a year. If interest rates tick up to even one or two or three percent, all of a sudden, because debt it refinances every 60 months, the federal debt, uh, it would triple or quadruple or more. It would, all of a sudden, we would have to pay trillions in federal taxes 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 15 years from now, um, just to cover the interest. So if Gen Z thinks of it like that, they should be looking at our parents and at our boomer grandparents who are voting for these politicians and who are running most of Congress and saying, what you're doing is just immoral. If you want this big government, you should pay for it with taxes. And the thing is, they, they don't because if they had to actually fully weigh the trade-offs, they know it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, you discuss it, too, with uh, Chuck Schumer talking about repealing some of the limits there in the 2017 um, tax reform bill from from President Trump and talking about how there was the, the salt deduction. And this this directly plays into it because now you're starting to basically create a system where more or less you're having a handout to, in many cases, which rich white liberals. And, and we talked about this, right, when you were on the show talking about student loan debt. Who's the student loan forgiveness helping? It's, it's helping predominantly the top percentages of Americans to begin with the, the the rich elitist you know white liberal that's and that's it's ironic because this is the people that you, they end up helping but when you hear all the narrative you hear all the 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 you know crying and screaming who are they going after they're going against the the, the rich white people right it's like well every single policy that you're you're going in and promoting here it, what's doing the exact opposite and it's actually supporting the very people that you're screaming so fervently against yeah, I find progressives like Chuck Schumer and AOC and some of these people to be the worst kind of progressives. They're progressives in all the ways that I hate and are bad for the country. Huge spending, massive regulation, <laughs> sweeping government. 
Yet on the rare things where progressives are actually based, you know, actually an AOC set her aside. She's a little different, but someone like Chuck Schumer, uh, you know, ending the wars, drug decriminalization, not having crony uh, corporate welfare for the rich and tax loopholes for the rich. Someone like Chuck Schumer is not even good on those few progressive issues where I actually want them to be. They're literally the worst of both worlds. So uh, you mentioned the salt deduction. People basically, it, it's a pretty complicated, wonky tax issue, but just think of it like this. There's a loophole in the tax code or a, a deduction that basically says the higher your taxes at the state and local level, the bigger you get a discount on your federal tax bill. So what that has the practical impact of doing is making states, red states, in their federal taxes have to pay more of a share of the federal tax burden than blue states would otherwise because they get a subsidy on the fact that they have a bigger government at the state and local level. So for one, it's just fundamentally unjust. Two, it mostly applies to really rich liberals in blue states. So just to read off some some numbers, right? But nearly half of the benefits of repealing the salt cap go to households earning more than 1 million. Just 0.5%, half of a single percentage point of the tax relief would go to households making less than 100K. This is uh, just, it's just a, a tax giveaway to wealthy rich people in blue states. But the third, and I would say arguably the worst thing about this policy is that it, it directly subsidizes and encourages the growth of the welfare state and the government at the state and local level. Because you get the benefits of bigger government, more welfare, uh, more schools, more whatever it may be, yet the costs are not fully on you. You get to send them to other people. That, because good policymaking is all about weighing trade-offs, costs, and benefits. Because of that dysfunction, that is the most pernicious aspect of this code. It allows states like California and Massachusetts to have even bigger governments and even bigger welfare states and even more bloated programs and not have to bear the full costs. And that, I think, really normalizes a dangerous trajectory that takes us to the further and further to the left. So I think this push, and it's not just Chuck Schumer, it's Nancy Pelosi, it's Joe Biden himself, all these supposedly progressive Democrats are fighting to restore this massive tax loophole for the rich. And I think it's one of the most outrageously hypocritical and destructive tax policy moves that we've seen in a long time. And because these same people, Brian, these same people, Brian, scream bloody murder about the GOP's tax cuts, which I just supported. And factually, most people got a tax cut and the business tax cuts helped the economy and jobs and wages. But they said it's a disgrace. It's a handout to the rich. Okay, well, the, the the tax change they're pushing now is much, much more skewed in favor of the rich than anything in that tax bill that Trump passed. And I was going to say, if you were to then let's let's go paint the entire picture. What do we just hear Janet Yellen talk about in implementing a corporate uh, tax rate across the world? OK, well, wh- why would she want to do that? Maybe because she doesn't want companies leaving the United States. Why would they leave the United States? Well, the same reason that the people would want to leave particularly expensive states because it costs so freaking much to even exist in those states. So you're starting to see this this um, grand picture, right, come together now. So you have, in one aspect, there is a, a tightening on the corporate uh, taxes from a global standpoint. People aren't being really 
I don't say permitted, but you are strongly being incentivized not to leave the United States. Oh, and then by the way, we're going to help get rid of all the incentives that you would want to have to go to a red state when your blue state is spending up the wazoo. I'm looking at you, California and New York specifically. Um, and then all of a sudden, the red state that you were going to go to because it's going to be more cost effective. Oh, now you're still paying more of a burden of the cost versus where you would have been otherwise. So you're losing incentive structures in two ways. And Brad, I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but one can't help but kind of sit back and put on the conspiracy hat and think like, well, that kind of all looks kind of convenient, eh? Yeah, I mean, it's the same reason that California has explored the idea of uh, taxes that follow you when you leave the state. Uh, They've literally introduced proposals for income taxes that follow you for, I think, eight or 10 years after you move out of California. Now, those I don't think would survive legal challenge. I'm not a lawyer, but from what I've read, conservative uh, judges, I think, would strike that down real quick. But it shows you that they know they know their tax policies are destructive for the economy and punish success and chased people over uh, to different areas. And so that's supposed to be good. That's supposed to be the design of our federalist system that, you know, people can vote with their feet and reward what works and punish what doesn't. They're actually trying to short circuit that by making it tying your hands, making it follow you, making their subsidies and all this destructive stuff. So they're really undermining one of the the better things about the American political system that has allowed us to uh, our system and our economy is deeply flawed in many ways. But we've still reached you know astronomical levels of success and innovation uh, that other countries don't have. Many European countries have stagnation and mass youth unemployment and double the average unemployment rate as a baseline as us. And it's like, well, why is that? It's because we still have closer to, far from it, but closer to a free market capitalist system than many of these other countries. And so anything that that ties the hands of our, our, of our system in that way is pushing us towards the path, um, away from the path that, that has brought us to the, to the success we've seen. And we're seeing as people realize more and more that things are getting weirder, they're starting to look for alternatives. And that's why I just did an entire episode here on Wednesday on Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is we're seeing a direct correlation with Bitcoin going up hundreds of percents per week relative to um, the, its counterpart, the dollar, which is actually going down quite a bit uh, per week. And and the, the reason being is people are losing that full faith and trust in the U.S. government and are looking to say, well, what else can we invest in that's going to have some long lasting value? Look at you, uh, you folks there in the government right now. Like you guys need to pay attention because like this is this is going to be and I hate the collapsitarian like argument that a lot of folks on the right will make, but like we don't want to see that, and and we are getting dangerously close as we continue this this idea. We can just keep spending more and more money as people start to lose faith and trust that the government is what it says it is. Well, trust is everything. I mean, trust is what keeps the U.S. together because we trust that the government is supposed to be the good guys and the government has all of our best interests in mind. And we've seen throughout the entirety of this pandemic, right? People are losing trust in the government. They've lost trust in the public health experts. They've lost trust in the, the, the people who are supposed to be keeping you safe, right? And I'm using that very, very loosely, the keeping you safe. Those folks have been on camera lying to you at the beginning of a pandemic, and they say that they lied because they wanted to keep you safe. I'm sorry, that's not a great way to build up a trustworthy relationship with somebody is to instantly just lie from the onset of a, a major crisis. And now that sentiment, it's it's fostered through a lot of different areas. People, are, I think, are becoming more inherently skeptical and I dare say cynical um, because they just know that 
well, you guys effed up in this area, this area, and this area. Where else are you effing up? And now they're starting to look. I mean, I think the trust in government I just saw is at an all-time low across the board at like 6%. In the 70s, it was around 80%. Something's happened, and people are waking up. And I get excited to think that maybe we have an opportunity now to help guide them towards real solutions, but we also have a very big threat. And that is that there's another group of people out there who are saying, more government, come our way. We can offer you all these great help and and solutions through just increasing the size of government and doing it right with all the right people. That's never a good argument either. And we know that that never ends well. And candidly, that's kind of how we got where we are today. Brad, I could keep on going forever and ever, but let's um, let's make sure we uh, we focus on, uh, you know, as we end up here, some positive things. So, uh, I, I always like to do this, Brad, you know that, painting the better fi- uh, picture for the future. So despite all the doom and gloom, I've been hearing a lot of folks, and you were just on Shapiro's show this morning, um, but you know I've heard him mention it as well, that there is some rosy outlook uh, for more of the right-leaning or we'll say small-L libertarian, uh, libertarian-leaning folks out there because there seems to be a growing sentiment that the backlash is coming, um, that this idea that you can just go through and unilaterally thrust down across the uh, the entire nation through the federal government, all these different policies and procedures, it's not going to be looking too hot. So Georgia, I know, those two seats, they're uh, you know being looked at right now with uh, a lot of some uh, raised eyebrows from the left. Also, you're seeing um, the numbers of, of folks across Congress. It, there was an expectation that the Republicans might have a chance to win back some seats, but that number is growing more and more as we get closer and closer um, to the election day, which I know is still you know over a year away and barring some unforeseen circumstance. That might be a, a direction of some positivity. So, Brad, let's uh, let's go to you. What are your thoughts? Do you think that's a, a ray of hope or, or is there somewhere else that you're kind of looking at as a ray of hope down the road? Yeah, I do. I would say cautiously optimistic because it depends uh, how it manifests itself. But all my money, if I was a betting man, would be on a huge red wave uh, in 2022. That's always what happens usually in the midterm after a president is elected. The opposite party benefits from a groundswell of really energized base, while the, uh, the, the incumbent party tends to get complacent and not show up to the polls. And I think that will be, if anything, more extreme than usual because people have been energized by the lockdowns and the restrictions on their freedom and the uh, you know rioting and looting and collapse of law and order and all these things that motivate people as well as, I think, uh, hopefully part of that motivation will be massive government spending and overreach. And so I could see that manifesting itself in kind of a Tea Party 2.0, a wave of uh, Republicans who are populisty or rhetorically uh, more on this Trumpy side, but at the end of the day are, are talking about a lot of things that are limited government in terms of, you know, overreach and lockdowns and less restrictions and and the corporate welfare and and the massive spending and bring the troops home. And so I could see a positive element from that. And I, w- and I would, that's what I really hope to see. But I do think there's another possibility. Uh, and the other possibility is that uh, there's that red wave, but it's it's a wave of populist culture warriors who want to use big government republicans um and and then it, they, they we have this wave of you know tucker carlson josh hawley style republicans who come in and tell people uh they focus on the culture war and then unfortunately most voters aren't super into policy that's not how they decide their vote and they just say well it's us versus them and now we have to punch back using the state and then we see a red wave of big government uh, kind of as a backlash to this current blue wave of big government. And that would be a really bad outcome, I think. But I do have hope that we'll see the first scenario 
Uh, and so that's what I'll be working to advance. And, and I know you will be and many other people. Uh, and so I, I think that is probably the more likely outcome. But I I'm got my fingers crossed. I'm knocking on wood over here. Amen, oh, man. And and honestly, this is what we're doing right now. And you you mentioned this earlier in the episode. The media has so just obviously and at this point willfully dropped the ball. And anybody who's just pretending that the media in general is not partisan or not uh, biased or does not have some type of an agenda or narrative, I'm sorry. Like, there's a great bridge I can sell you out up in northern New York. Give me a shout. We'll go ahead and hook up sometime. But it's important for us to have this dialogue and make sure that people are aware of what's happening. I mean, Brad, I and I texted you this back a couple of months ago. I had a buddy of mine who is a, a fervent lefty, and he he saw there was the renewed talk about Fight for 15. And he messaged me because he's like, hey, Brian, listen, you know, I disagree with you so much on politics, but like I just... I need to at least understand what you're arguing. And I, I will give him credit where credit is due. He wanted to genuinely understand how a, a minimum wage is harmful. And I said, I got you. I got you, fam. And I fired over some some stuff from you over at Fee. And he messaged me back. And he's like, I get, okay, I get your argument. And he's like, and I, I'm i a little weary on the argument, but now I understand. I see the, the concern and I just think we can do better. Like that was more of like his approach, but the fact that he at least now is like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get why there's a sense of concern. It's not that they hate people and they just want to exploit labor. It's that there's real, like, <laughs> science to what is actually happening in the economy. And you can predict things based on supply, demand, incentive structures. It's not us trying to, you know, play with with numbers to, to make people rich. It's trying to understand how human behavior has been, uh, really, it's been manifested in the way that we act. And in this case, we exchange goods and services in, in a voluntary fashion, right? And that's something I think as we start to have this conversation more and, and we start to draw the connections. Hey, when you go out and you order that thing online, do you go ahead and just buy the one thing that the government says is the one product? Or do you like to go ahead and search for many different options and review things? And that's going back to Gen Z. I think that's why inherently that generation is going to be more open to our ideas because there's a great line um, that I heard and technology is only new so long as you don't know the technology from uh, before. So think about it. the Gen Z generation. They are growing up in a world right now where smartphones are the status quo. That's the starting off point. And if that was the starting off point, you instantly have a little computer in your pocket that you can go ahead and and really look at any decision you're going to make. Weigh the pros, the cons, look and see if there's any alternatives out there, if there's anything you can get more cost effective, a better service, whatever it may be. And that decision now can all be made in the confines of what, a minute versus before you'd have to go home. You'd have to spend time doing the research. You'd have to go you know, maybe to the library. There's a library where what what is a library books things are like that and this is the the advancement of technology is as those those new thresholds are set and the, the bar is raised that's where we have I think a really good opportunity because we're the we're the solution oriented folks we're the ones presenting the real options out there to help answer the questions and the problems that are being presented by in this case uh, Gen Z that are being caused by the older generation so Brad. Thank you. And I, I truly cannot thank you enough for all that you're doing and helping tie all this together. And I always finish my show with you saying I, I feel like we went to school and I feel like I'm much smarter uh, than I was when I, I went into the conversation. So if folks want to go ahead and make sure that they feel smarter as well, um, obviously, we'll include the links to your amazing podcast, Breaking Boundaries. But you're doing a lot of work at Fee, National Review. So where else can uh, folks go ahead and follow you and support you? 
Yeah. So first subscribe to the podcast, like you mentioned, Breaking Boundaries, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, we also have a YouTube page. Just search my name, Brad Palumbo. Uh, and then over on Twitter, it's Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. That's my home base where you'll find just about everything I'm doing. Uh, and then hopefully I'll be back on this show soon to to do another update because it's always a blast. I, I am a regular listener, too. I recommend this pod all the time. Uh, and so I appreciate you having me, Brian. Sure, buddy. And it's always a, a great time to uh, not only have you on the show, but to to raise up all the great work you're doing. And hey, this is the future, man. The the collaboration approach, working with people who actually care about these issues and are helping make a difference. That is the vision and that is the future. That being said, Brad Palumbo from Fee National Review, Breaking Boundaries, all that we will be including in the show notes. As always, Brad Palumbo, thank you for joining the Brian Nichols Show. Thanks, man. Who likes going to the grocery store? You have to pick up the car, head to the store, shop amongst the covid masses, stand in line for hours at checkout, then drive all the way back home only to have to lug your groceries into the house. Well, what if you were able to get all your groceries delivered right to your door with savings up to 50% off of the big guys? Brian, your Thrive Market order has arrived. Thrive Market is one of the top grocery store alternatives on the market featuring hundreds of products for specific diets and lifestyles. So, you eating paleo or Whole30 or you living that keto life? Perhaps you have celiacs like yours truly and you want some gluten-free options that actually taste good. Side note, Thrive literally has one of the best gluten-free pizza crusts I've ever had. Literally have it every single week. And here's what's even better. Not only do all orders over $49 get free shipping, but members of the Brian Nichols Show audience get 20% off their first order, plus get one month of their Thrive membership for free. So head over to the show notes and click the link for your exclusive Thrive Market offer and start skipping the grocery store today. Let's sell liberty and look good doing it with Proud Libertarian. Folks, when we're selling liberty, we have to start things off by peaking interest. And what better way to peak some interest than by rocking some amazing apparel from Proud Libertarian. Personally, I'm a huge fan of their Do Good Recklessly t-shirt, but there's more than t-shirts to find from awesome taxationist theft snapbacks to the killer Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death hoodies. Proud Libertarian has all the libertarian swag you need. And guess what? Brian Nichols Show audience members can rock the latest libertarian swag and save some cash on every single order. All you have to do, use code TBNS at checkout and you'll get 10% off your entire cart at checkout. That's right. Each time you order, use code TBNS and you'll instantly get 10% off your entire order. Listen, I am super excited to have Proud Libertarian here as a sponsor of the Brian Nichols Show. So do me a favor. Head over there to Proud Libertarian. Place your order today. Use code TBNS at checkout. Save 10% on your order and help support libertarian entrepreneurs today. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Brad Palumbo. Always a fantastic conversation to be had with Brad. How about that? That kind of rhymed. That's fun. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, do me a solid, folks. Head over to uh, Apple Podcasts. First of all, give us that five-star rating review. I want to hear that you like the program. Um, that's one thing that, that candidly, it makes... Uh, my job so much easier here at the program because when you guys are out there just telling folks left and right why you like the show, well, guess what? They listen. Uh, so please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating review, uh, and please go ahead and make sure you share that review and tag it, uh, or tag it, tag me on Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, and Parlor.com when you share said review at B. Nichols Liberty. Also, if you want to go ahead and say hi, well, you can go ahead and email me, Brian, at BrianNicholsShow.com. Coming up here next week, well, folks, what can you go ahead and get in store for? Well, of course, a bunch of fantastic episodes uh, coming up here next week to behold. First of all, we are going to be meeting a brand new uh, voice to the Liberty Movement, and I'm I'm so 
so thankful not just to have him a part of the Liberty Movement, but I would dare say uh, a part of the team. And that is uh, one Chris Goizetta. Now, he has been doing a lot of work uh, focusing on bringing marketing skills and strategy uh, to the Greater Liberty Movement. Chris joins the Brian Eagle Show to discuss uh, how we can do that on Monday. Then coming up here uh, on Wednesday, we are joined by Trent Ortner. Trent is focusing on the Redacted Caucus, focusing on Liberty Unity, which has been a big topic as of late. So conversation there on Wednesday. And then coming up on Friday, Nolan Gray joins the program and we're digging into California and California's absolutely insane environmental laws and how, believe it or not, they might be doing more harm to the environment than they uh, are actually doing good. Are you surprised, folks? I, I'm sure you're, you're not too surprised. And I would be remiss. I forgot to mention, of course, continuing our amazing Sunday series uh, here in the Brian Nichols Show, introducing these brand new candidates, Tim McMaster. He is running for state senate here in Pennsylvania. So you have four amazing episodes coming up here this week. So I'm going to ask you to, again, head over to Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit subscribe, and it is Friday, so I'm going to go ahead and read a review. This coming from Spice Master. Five stars, definitely worth a listen. Keep up the good work, great format, and Brian doesn't just ramble on or get too far off track. Hey, that's a positive review, and I will take it as such. So thank you, Spice Master. If you want to go ahead and hear your review right here on The Brian Nichols Show, make sure you get your reviews in between now and next Friday. And also, folks, between now and next Friday, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and uh, subscribe to this amazing new uh, new opportunity we have here at The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, maybe not subscribe, not the right word. S- sign up <laughs> is what I'm going to say, because you can get 100% discount. Um, here, if you are a member of the Brian Nichols Show audience, is Microdoses, the Heroic Dose Conference, uh, and I will be hosting a panel, and we're going to be talking with uh, some military veterans uh, who have been using psychedelics to help deal with PTSD, depression, and other mental health issues, so I would greatly appreciate your support. As a member of the Brian Nichols Show audience, please head over to the show notes, click the link, and if you do, again, sign up as a member of the Brian Nichols Show audience, you get to sign up completely free, and it is so important uh, for us to go ahead and show some support, so please, again, Head over to the show notes, click that link, and sign up for the Heroic Dose 10 a.m. on April 22nd. Folks, thank you for uh, for joining us on another fun-filled episode, as always. And thank you to uh, my good buddy, Brad Palumbo. Please, if you have not, go ahead and supported his program, Breaking Boundaries. Go ahead and do so, and also make sure you go ahead and follow him over on his social media. But folks, with that being said, thank you so much for joining us on another fantastic conversation with another fantastic guest. Thank you, Brad Palumbo. That being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Brad Palumbo from Fee. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.